0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to the education channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom DeSena, from the Department of Communication, Journalism, and Public Relations at Oakland University. My guest today is Elizabeth Anderson, the author of Hijacked, How Neoliberalism Turned the Work Ethic Against Workers and How Workers Can Take It Back. In her latest work, Professor Anderson asks, what is the work ethic? Does it justify policies that promote the wealth and power of the 1% at workers' expense? Or does it advance policies that promote workers' dignity and standing? Her book, Hijacked, explores how the history of political economy has been a contest between these two ideas about whom the work ethic is supposed to serve. Today's neoliberal ideology deploys the work ethic on behalf of the 1%, however, workers and their advocates have long used the work ethic on behalf of ordinary people. By exposing the ideological roots of contemporary neoliberalism as a perversion of the 17th century Protestant work ethic, Elizabeth Anderson shows how we can reclaim the original goals of the work ethic and uplift ourselves again. Hijack persuasively and powerfully demonstrates how ideas inspired by the work ethic informed debates among leading political economists of the past and how these ideas can help us today. Elizabeth Anderson is the Max Mendel Shea Professor of Public Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the University of Michigan. She is the author of Value in Ethics and Economics, the Imperative of Integration, and Private Government, How Employers Rule Our Lives and Why We Don't Talk About It. She is a MacArthur Fellow and Fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Elizabeth Anderson, welcome, or should I say welcome back to the Newton Brooks Network.
2: I'm so happy to be back. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. So uh, thanks again for taking
1: the time to talk. Uh, We talked once before uh, about your last book, um, and I'm pretty sure we talked about this, but I wonder if you could uh, let our listeners know what got you interested in this project. That is, how did you come to start writing about the work ethic?
2: Well, it's a little bit of a return to interests that I acquired when I was an undergraduate studying economics and philosophy at Swarthmore College. At the time, uh, a lot of my, uh, professors were very interested in thinking about working conditions for workers. it was I was educated in the late 70s and early 80s for my college education. There was a lot of labor agitation that was happening at the time, even bigger than the rise in strikes happening these days. It was much bigger back then, actually. And so it was really a, a time of labor turmoil. And a lot of my professors were thinking hard about why that was so and why workers were so discontent with their working conditions. So this book is actually a sequel to my earlier book, Private Government. Uh, It's a little bit about authoritarianism in the workplace, which is the subject of my previous book, but I've expanded it and taken a larger historical view going back to the 17th century Puritans who invented the work ethic in England, uh, because I think uh, today's conflicts very much grow out of their thinking both on the right and the left.
1: Yeah. So you start your study with um, the Protestant work ethic, as I suppose we should. Uh, and you of course, you know, most people are are familiar with this idea from the work of Weber. So let's but you, your account is a little bit different because you identified that there are two sides to um, the Protestant work ethic and that they how does how does these two sides contribute to our understanding of relationships between rich and poor?
2: Yes, so the work ethic that we're all familiar with tells workers to put their nose to the grindstone and toil relentlessly for the profit of their employer. That's the version of the work ethic that Max Weber, the great sociologist, talked about at the turn of the last century. And it's also the version under which we're currently living, which we today call neoliberalism. But my interest in going back to the 17th century Puritans and reading their sermons, these are mostly ministers creating the work ethic, was to find out what they really said. And I discovered in reading them that they actually were very critical of exploitative and predatory capitalists and called for major benefits for workers who work hard, living wages, fair treatment at work, safe working conditions, uh, respect from their employers, they shouldn't be tyrannized. And from that came what I call the progressive or pro-worker work ethic, which itself has a long history through the history of political economy and economics and in politics too, because that's the strain of the work ethic that ultimately led to social democracy.
1: So from the Protestants, we turn our attention to the the secularization of this idea, and especially here, the work of John Locke. Uh, And reflecting that there are some complexities here in regards to his treatment of the poor, as well as the political culture that he was operating from, what do you argue are the major contributions that Locke makes to our understanding of the work ethic?
2: So Locke is one step on the road to secularizing the work ethic. He still has some important theological assumptions, but critically for Locke, the most important point is that we should design economic institutions to ensure that everyone has a realistic prospect of flourishing. Every last person, every particular person, Needs to be have that assurance that institutions will support their well-being, and he was also quite critical, as his Puritan predecessors were, of predatory capitalist strategies. Uh, and when he was a colonial administrator, uh, late, very late in his career. Under William and Mary, uh, he actually attempted to, for practical purposes, dismantle the system of slavery and indentured servitude and emancipate the workers who were going over to the state colony of Virginia by ensuring that each of them would get a plot of land to farm rather than have to labor on a big plantation owned by a very wealthy person.
1: So there's a theme that sort of runs through these first two chapters about the relationship also between work and consumption. I was wondering if you might want to tell us a little bit about how both Locke, and, to some degree, and the Puritans viewed uh, how people ought to really display wealth.
2: Ah, well, the Puritans famously were uh, ascetic philosophers. Right, so you shouldn't be indulgent. You shouldn't be engaged in conspicuous consumption because that's idle and wasteful. Consumer goods should be for the flourishing and comfort of everyone and not for ostentatious display or competitive consumption. Uh, And any surplus that a rich person has should be dedicated to the common welfare, either specifically to the welfare of the poor who are unable to provide for themselves or to the commonwealth more broadly. In other words, he's saying, pay your taxes, <laughs> right? And also promote public goods in other ways, like you might want to contribute to the church or something like that.
1: But there, but there's another sort of, um, and I'm trying to remember when this enters into the story, it, as the work ethic sort of expands this idea that the display of goods becomes a sign of... um, Oh, a virtue, yes. virtue, yeah.
2: So that is a late 18th century development. We're talking about a century after Locke, and that's emerging with the rise of the Industrial Revolution in the 18th century. And, And here the primary debates among political economists and moralists was about what institutions of property and markets and economic regulations are best going to promote and reward the work ethic, that is reward people for working hard and saving. And here we see a radical split between two different versions of the work ethic. The one we're familiar with basically says that poverty is a sign that you are lazy and feckless. Maybe you're having too many kids without having the uh, wages to support them or spending the money on drink rather than promoting the welfare of family members or just not working hard enough or expect to live off the doll lazily rather than contribute to the public good. People were very ready on the conservative side of the work ethic to impute virtue to the wealthy and vice to the poor, simply on account of their being rich or poor. They assumed if you were rich, it could only be through honest methods. The other side... (laughs) which I call the progressive or pro worker work ethic, whose champion at the beginning of the industrial revolution was Adam Smith said, this was ridiculous. If you look empirically, the rich are more inclined to vices like drunkenness than the poor. Uh, the rich are much more likely to be idle. Remember the rich in Smith's day were primarily, uh, landowners who were just collecting rents. They weren't doing any work. Um, Or maybe they would be predatory. Smith was very critical of the manufacturers at the time who were lobbying the government to impose tariffs. In other words, to protect their monopolies, and then they could extract monopoly profits from consumers. And Smith condemned that. So his view is there's practically an inverse relationship between how hard people are working and how much money Uh, they get. (laughs) It was really the peasants who were the hardest workers, but who were also the poorest.
1: Yeah, so chapters three and four, you you turn our attention to how conservatives, and here we're talking about folks like Jeremy Bentham and Malthus and Waitley, hijacked the idea of the work ethic and and basically constructed an ideology from that hijacking. And you summarize some of this material in in one of these chapters, and I'd like, if you would, to read here um, the first full paragraph on page 130.
2: The conservative work ethic is not simply a set of doctrines. It embodies an extremely harsh set of attitudes toward the working poor. A nearly insurmountable suspicion of their claims of need and lack of opportunity to satisfy needs without assistance. Contempt for their suffering and readiness to blame them for it. Resentment of and desire to limit any pleasures or assistance they might enjoy. Blindness to their virtues and merits. Fear of their independent agency an obsessive desire to control them for one's own profit, and a disposition to impose responsibilities on them made in obstinate disregard for their physical abilities and opportunities and for the costs they must bear in carrying them out. Such callous and imperious attitudes drive people to select and interpret evidence in ways that rationalize and reinforce them. The conservative work ethic regarded as a set of doctrines, is the product of such self-justifying processes.
1: So I think that's a a beautifully uh, rendered uh, version of a very ugly idea. Um, And I was wondering if we might unpack it for a minute because this had some very real consequences and continues to have some very real consequences for our understanding of, of not just the work ethic, but uh, the lives of the people who we live with. Um, what kinds of things sort of came out of these attitudes that you describe so eloquently here?
2: Well, <clears throat> as I explained in my book, it had very profound impacts on English welfare policy in the 18th and 19th centuries, because of this profound suspicion of the very poor. Uh, in England, in around the, in the 1830s, there were huge debates about growing welfare roles and how to cut them back. And they passed a welfare reform that banned so-called outdoor relief. That's cash payments to the desperately poor that enabled them to stay in their homes and feed their families. Instead, they said you had to go to a workhouse and be forced to work uh, in order to get assistance. And the workhouses were appalling places of forced labor. People had no civil rights. They were essentially imprisoned in the workhouses. Uh, uh, They were deliberately humiliated, they were not allowed forks and spoons with which to eat the meals provided. They were given rotten food. They were denied health care. They were segregated by sex and age. So families were broken up and children separated from their parents and husbands and wives separated. Uh, They were just the most horrific places Uh, And then when the Irish Famine hit, this is the famous potato famine of the mid-19th century. Uh, At that time, of course, Ireland was part of uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, And welfare policy was managed by the Treasury Department in London through correspondence with welfare uh, relief officials, famine relief officials in Ireland Uh, And they were very stinting. They assumed that the Irish peasants were inherently lazy uh, uh, and repeatedly offered uh, relief only on the most stinting and humiliating terms. And indeed, when you look at the debates in Parliament about what to do about the Irish famine, the dominant view was this is a great opportunity to wipe the Irish peasants off the land, drive the Irish landlords into bankruptcy and reform uh, Irish agriculture on the English model, which was a capitalist model of our agriculture that eliminated the peasantry. Uh, And (laughs) more than a million Irish died during the famine. Many of these deaths were preventable. Uh, But they were not prevented because of these very harsh and biased attitudes towards Irish peasants and even towards their landlords. They were both considered too lazy and needed to be punished in order to force them to work.
1: And again, this is just sort of the the realization of of some of these attitudes that you you draw in here um, that, again, uh, seem to justify just an astonishing degree of inhumanity.
2: Absolutely. So these are very cruel doctrines. But we should also consider that today, some of these attitudes still persist. They lay behind uh, the welfare reform that took place in the 90s under the Clinton administration. This presumption that the poor are just lazy, even if they're working you know, three jobs and barely get any sleep, but none of them even combined pay enough to cover rents and other expenses. There's still this assumption that if you can't make ends meet, it must be due to you and not due to the fact that wages are so low and have been suppressed.
1: So in chapters five, six, and seven, we turn our attention to the progressive version of the work ethic, and you work to rescue it, especially, I think, the figure of Adam Smith from Cold War Ideology. Again, there's a nice uh, summary of this idea. uh, uh, If you would, again, read on uh, page 128 um, that begins the, the passage, Theorists in the Progressive Tradition.
2: Theorists in the progressive tradition seek economic arrangements that emancipate workers from groveling subordination to superiors, and in which work is a meaningful domain for the exercise of varied and sophisticated skills. They reject the stunted conception of the good life as a matter of competitive acquisition in an essentially antagonistic zero-sum status gain. They look forward to a society in which everyone can enjoy a life beyond the work ethic, one that recognizes a broader set of virtues and goods than those extolled by the work ethic. Such a society would offer plentiful goods for all to enjoy. It would not condition access to the goods fundamental to a dignified life or to sharing in the common life of society on earning them through individualistic striving. Such a society would be so arranged that individual fulfillment is inseparable from promoting the good of others, in which individuals are recognized for their contributions and take satisfaction in their contribution to the good of others.
1: So the first of these chapters, we're looking at a reassessment of Adam Smith, which, again, uh, many people um, sort of focusing on Cold War ideology uh, tend to think of um, as Believing in the idea of completely unregulated markets. Um, now, understanding that there are, again, historical contingencies here, what did Smith and then later John Stuart Mill contribute to making the work ethic at least potentially progressive as opposed to oppressive?
2: So, the core dispute <clears throat> between conservative and progressive visions of the work ethic has to do with what incentives are needed to promote the work ethic among workers who are the great mass of people. The conservatives thought that the workers are innately lazy and they'll only work hard if they're put in a situation of poverty and precarity, always worried about where their next meal will come from and that will make them work hard. Smith was the great champion of the rival view. He said, look, if you want workers to work hard, why don't you pay them decently? If workers have a reasonable prospect of improving their lives through harder work, you can rest assured that they will work very hard. Both Smith and Mill also thought that people work hardest when they have the greatest incentive, and people have the greatest incentive to work hard when they get all of the fruits of their labor, And that argues in favor of promoting individual businesses and entrepreneurship. That is some system in which workers are emancipated from subordination to employers. They would own their own farm. Both Smith and Mill were great champions of breaking up the great estates through indirect market means uh, so that yeoman farmers, could acquire their own plot and farm it uh, as independent, uh, self-employed workers. John Stuart Mill, thinking about the Industrial Revolution and the efficiencies of large-scale production, was also the champion of workers' cooperatives and, less radically, profit-sharing and labor unions in order to make sure that workers have agency at work and that they are treated decently as at work as another way to ensure that they really will want to work hard and not just be coerced into it.
1: I, mean, I, I guess that's sort of the, the crux of the issue here, isn't it, that, that somehow or another paying people a decent wage has distorting effects on the people who actually do the work, but it doesn't seem to have the same distorting effects on uh people who are already wealthy. Uh, For them, there seems to be a different kind of yardstick for measuring their behavior.
2: You're quite right. I mean, under neoliberalism today, the theory is that, you know, chief executive officers of top corporations need to be paid billions in order to get them to work hard. (laughs) But somehow you have to keep workers at the smallest of minimum wages in order to get them to work hard. There's a background assumption here that there are class differences in people's virtue. And Smith and Mill and other progressives thought this was preposterous, that everyone basically has the same underlying incentives that is that that if you give them the same incentives, they'll respond the same way, regardless of their class position. And indeed, they thought that excessive uh, unearned income made the people at the top lazy and making it too easy to make a profit without contributing to welfare of the larger society uh, would also just lead capitalists to adopt predatory and exploitative business plans that enrich themselves at the expense of everybody else in society.
1: So one of the, um, and I'm I'm not sure if this is even controversial necessarily, but maybe one of the less obvious claims in your book is that you situate Karl Marx as having more in common with Adam Smith than many Cold War ideologies would, would want to recognize. So how does Marx's work factor into discussions of what you understand as the progressive work ethic?
2: so marx is a very interesting figure i just want to stress that i'm here i'm thinking about marx's theory of human flourishing and how work fits into it and what an ideal kind of work would be it doesn't have to do with his vision of the institutional arrangements that would realize that ideal of work Uh, that then he's very sharply distinguished from people like John Stuart Mill and Adam Smith and other progressives. But they're all on the same page in terms of how the drudgery and the lack of safety and the indignity and poor wages of uh, Industrial Revolution workers in the first half of the Industrial Revolution was just awful for them, unjust, oppressive. You didn't have to Uh, strip workers of their property and put them in such a state of desperate precarity to get them to work hard. They all agreed on that. And they also agreed that the kind of work that was created by the industrial revolution, where you would have somebody who for their entire lives, (coughs) their entire working lives would be confined to some simple mechanical operation, say fitting the head of a pin on a pin endlessly, as Smith observed in uh, The Wealth of Nations in his study of the famous pin factory in the Industrial Revolution, or later on with Marx looking at uh, more mechanized kinds of work, very repetitive, dangerous, uh, very low wage, and stultifying. Just think about your life if you just make the same motion over and over again, Ultimately, of course, in the 20th century, all that got automated. But in the 19th century, these repetitive motions were performed by human beings as stultifying and awful. Mark, Smith, Mill, they all wanted workers to be able to exercise real talents at work, not be reduced to unskilled drudges. They wanted that work to be fulfilling in its content and interest. And they wanted workers to be respected for the work they did and paid living wages for that. And on that, they're all on the same page.
1: Yeah. And I think your discussion here about the, the way that, as you say, the, that, um, industrial work like that could be stultifying is, I mean, it's apropos. It has, it has real effects on, uh, people's lives when, when they're compelled to do work like that as a, as a regular part of their lives.
2: Yes, and, and they're all on the on the same page on that point that, you know, if you're just engaged in tedious drudgery for the entire day, you're so exhausted when you get off work, you don't have energy to do anything except maybe go out to the bar and, and drink. <laughs> so while the conservative work ethic advocates looked at the workers leaving the factory and going straight to the bars as a sign of their vice, uh, the progressives looked at this and said, well, yeah, I mean, what else are you going to do? You have to drown your sorrows. Yeah.
1: You got to know yourself and, somehow. Yes. <laughs> um, it, it, the other another part, piece to this, of course, and, and maybe this will get us into chapter eight, um, and this is sort of, I take to be kind of a, a focal point of your argument. Um, what do you understand by the term social democracy and how does it serve as the culmination here of the of the progressive work ethic?
2: So social democracy is a political philosophy uh, that emerged in the very late 19th century in Europe and was implemented first in Sweden and then in other Scandinavian countries and Germany, the Netherlands, basically the rich democracies of continental Europe, as opposed to the conservative work ethic, which we got from uh, Britain, uh, and the United States implemented that for the most part with a somewhat, uh, social democratic tinge though, uh, in the new deal. So social democracy believes in arranging social institutions in such a way that everyone has a decent standard of living and social insurance, things like social security, universal health insurance, And also, famously, on the continent of Europe, but uh, not in the United States, (laughs) guaranteed paid vacations.
1: Wouldn't that be nice?
2: (laughs) In Denmark, people get five weeks guaranteed a paid vacation, I think. Might even be six weeks. In France, famously, everybody takes August off. Uh, These are wildly popular innovations. Uh, And broadly speaking, the idea is that, look, workers are the ones who are producing all the stuff uh, and making society work. And so they should have a decent life and be able to participate in the society's broader cultural life and not just wake up, have to drag themselves to work, come back, feed their kids, and then... uh, have to fall asleep only to work up, wake up the next day. They need their leisure so that they have a life to enjoy outside of work.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
1: One of the other pieces to this, of course, and this is of particular interest to me, has to do with the role of labor unions in social democracy. And and not just as sort of a counterweight to capitalist enterprises, but also as a mechanism through which people exercise um, their their voice and to participate in democratic institutions.
2: Correct. So The vision of the progressive work ethic as embodied in social democracy always involves empowering workers at work. So you have two major innovations of social democracy, which we don't really have in the United States. One is known as sectoral bargaining. And that's when all the workers in the int- in the industry, in some industrial sector, say automotives, are on one side of the bargaining table and all the employers, all the big auto companies are on the other side of a bargaining table and they work out terms for every firm in the industry, wage and benefits packages, uh, whatever workplace regulations, the workers uh work out in conjunction with the employers, and so forth. That's one great innovation is sectoral bargaining. And as implemented in the Scandinavian countries, it has resulted in remarkable levels of labor peace. You don't have to go on strike to get a good deal. Uh, And that ended up being a a mutual benefit both to workers and to uh, the companies that employed them, because the cost of strikes is extremely high on both sides. So if you look at the major success that the uh, United Auto Workers got from their recent strike of the big three auto companies in the United States, they won a huge victory, but at an economic cost of 10, $10 billion, a big chunk of it absorbed by the workers, but also a big chunk of it absorbed by the companies who had lost, uh, you know, production for those weeks of the strike. And so will suffer lower sales. You can eliminate that with sectoral bargaining. You have labor peace. Everybody gets satisfied. The other great innovation on the labor on, on the labor ends in how the workplace is managed Uh, is known as co-determination, and that's when workers get seats on the board of directors of the firm, and perhaps more importantly, they get works councils. So the shop floor management is not run only by the employer. Workers actually jointly manage the shop floor, the actual day-to-day working conditions, and what the nature of the work process is like They manage that jointly with their employer and they have a voice throughout. And again, it's about democratizing the workplace and uh, giving agency to workers at work. They can have initiative. They can speak out without fear of retaliation from their employer.
1: And if anyone is interested in uh, that idea of sectoral bargaining, uh, last year on this podcast, I interviewed David Madland, who wrote a book on that subject about uh, advocating for sectoral bargaining in the United States. Um, So in the penultimate chapter, you bring us to what amounts to our present moment. Um, Again, this is a very fraught term, and we've used it a few times already in this conversation. But what do you understand to be neoliberalism, and how does it represent the, I guess, not even return, but maybe even revenge of the conservative work ethic?
2: (laughs) Right. So neoliberalism is basically an ideology connected to a set of policies where all of those policies are fundamentally redistributing uh, income and power from workers back to capitalists and property owners. So it's a bunch of things have to do with lowering taxes on the rich, putting the tax burdens on uh, ordinary workers, uh, free flows of capital internationally, various kinds of globalization, uh, cutbacks on the welfare state, including, importantly, social insurance, uh, cutbacks on the origin of public goods to make sure that everybody has to buy whatever they need on the market from capitalist providers, privatization of public services. So instead of having government-run schools You create charter schools and uh, hand the management over to a private for-profit corporation. Same for hospitals. Uh, And pretty much the unleashing of firms from regulations to enable them to maximize profits by pretty much whatever means they see fit. And that has led to a massive redistribution of wealth (coughs) and income from the uh, middle ranks to the 1%, the 100th of 1%, even the 1,000th of 1%. Uh, we can see that in <clears throat> the dramatic increase in inequality and in the top ranks of business owners. Back in, you know, back in the 50s, you had no one who had uh, the immense multi-billions of Jeff Bezos Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk. But today, the top executives of the biggest firms expect compensation in many, many billions.
1: Yeah. It, it, and it's an astonishing story of, of the, that you tell in this chapter. And um, since we're both working sort of loosely for the same state government, I, I like to point out to my students that You know, when I attended this institution, I'm at Oakland University. um, The state of Michigan funded about 70% of the operating costs of this school. Um, That was was in 1988. And then I sort of blitzed them with the idea, and today, uh, that those numbers are almost reversed, and the state funds right thirty percent of what it costs to operate this place.
2: Well, even thirty percent is a lot. I think yeah, at yeah. University of Michigan, maybe they're around eleven or twelve percent.
1: Yeah, it, it's it keeps getting yeah, it, it just keeps getting eviscerated those numbers, and and basically we're just we're just transferring the um, we're just transferring the the burden of, of getting an education onto the students, and and, and not- that's
2: really a primary source of student debt. Yeah. I mean, it, it, if for students uh, who attended a uh, public university or college back in the day, certainly in the post-war era, they could emerge without any debt. Because even if you went to a top-ranked school like University of California at Berkeley, uh, the, the state would pick up almost the entire cost. So you would emerge with a fantastic degree and essentially no debt.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's an astonishing again. It, it's a it's an astonishing reversal of um, of where we're placing the burdens. We're really sort of putting it on those people who are least able to to shoulder it.
2: Absolutely, and keep in mind that this is not the norm in the social democratic countries. So in Germany, for instance, not only do they pay your entire tuition, they even provide eighteen year olds. A stipend so that they're not economically dependent on their parents for their living expenses. And the same is true in Sweden and some other social democracies.
1: Gosh, I've got a fifteen-year-old. Maybe we'll start looking at Sweden at the University of uh, Berlin. Um, so the-
2: <laughs> I think it's only available to citizens. <laughs> oh, not. <nuts. laughs>
1: Oh, well. Uh, so the the final chapter is really densely packed with arguments in favor of reviving uh, the progressive work ethic. And there is certainly a part of me right now, and, and this is maybe a tease for our listeners, that would like to get really, really geeky and start talking about uh, replicators on the Starship Enterprise. Uh, but you argue for you argue that bringing back the progressive work ethic offers three key resources. Um, What are these and, and why do you think they're significant?
2: One of the beautiful things about history is that, well, there are actually two great things. One is to recognize the contingency of our current ways of thinking that is that in the past, People thought differently. So there's nothing inevitable about the way we think today. And hence, we can both study the past to see how much we might be locked into obsolete ideas that we inherited from thinkers in the past, but also as a source of new resources Uh, alternative ideas and ideas for how to live and arrange institutions that might be very useful for us today. I focus first off, and this is the main uh, focus of my book, on offering a critical perspective on neoliberalism, which is really just a continuation or maybe even a revival of the conservative work ethic on steroids, and show that going back to thinkers like Adam Smith, Uh, uh, the Ricardian socialists, John Stuart Mill, his father James, uh, the founder of social democracy, Edward Bernstein. All of these people were drawing on the progressive work ethic and its ideals uh, to argue for an alternative that ultimately became social democracy. I also want to highlight how much an agenda for workers amounts to unfinished business in the United States. Of all the rich countries of the world, and the United States is a very wealthy country. We have really the raw steel for workers among our, you know, rich country peers. Uh, nobody gets guaranteed paid vacation. That is guaranteed by law. We have to bargain with our employers. Uh, we work more hours than uh, most of our rich country peers, and all of the, all of our rich country peers in Europe. Uh, we have high, very the highest rates of uh, poverty for full time workers, and radical disempowerment because so few workers are protected by uh, labor union. Whereas in much of Europe, uh, very large percentages of workers in whole sectors of the economy, almost all of them are covered by a collective bargaining agreement. Uh, So there are lots of things we could be doing in the United States for workers that would make their lives much better off. Uh, uh, And I think we should be doing those things. Other things too, like fully funding uh, social insurance, Uh, And finally, I think the work ethic can provide us a perspective for thinking about how to meet the challenges of the 21st century. And I want to stress that now, a major challenge that we're facing is climate change, which is going to require massive uh, restructuring of our energy infrastructure, our transportation infrastructure, how we manufacture things like glass and steel, Uh, and that really... It's going to require an enormous amount of labor. Uh, in addition, we're going to have to adapt. We have to change our building codes to adapt to new climate uh, challenges and rebuild our housing and our, and our buildings so they can withstand, you know, worse hurricanes and floods and so forth. All of this is, is, is going to require a lot of work. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why I'm skeptical of post-work theorists and the tech bros in Silicon Valley who think that automation is going to, and artificial intelligence are going to wipe out all jobs, and uh, they're just going to put everyone on a small, universal basic income uh, that is cash, uh, 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 for nothing in return while the robots do everything and the billionaires essentially make all the money that there is. <laughs> I think we actually need work, and that means that <clears throat> we should be honoring the people who are needed to do that work, uh, and we should strive for a full employment economy so that no one is involuntarily unemployed, uh, and, and you know, rethink work so that it's more fulfilling for people.
1: Because it can be, and, and that's as we finish up today. I, I usually ask authors what they are working on next, but there seems to me to be something sort of problematic about in the book about the work ethic to do that. And and you point to this in your um in your preface that there's sort of a deep irony going on in um your own feelings about work.
2: Well, yeah. <laughs> so <clears throat> look, I love my job. And I think my job by and large fulfills the criteria for what a good job looks like. It's incredibly interesting work. I have variety at work, uh, uh, lots of different kinds of tasks. I have enormous amounts of autonomy. I'm f- nicely paid. I have my comforts and I, I you know, I can have vacation time. Uh, but I'm also like, so, in a way, absorbed in my work, that I don't have the best work-life balance. And, and that's a reason why I think guaranteed vacations, like in Europe, would be a great thing for American workers. <laughs> and if you have high wages, you don't have to worry about the lost wages. So I do think that there's a certain tendency of uh, workers to be self-exploitative and to work too many hours. Uh, we need to put the brakes on that. <laughs> I would probably profit from that. Uh, more brakes on myself. Um, in, in Europe, they do that. Uh, and I think that would be healthier. So I'm not going to say that the work ethic is uh, is the only thing that we should be looking after. And indeed, one of the interesting features of social democracy is that although it grew out of the progressive work ethic, it always looked forward To establishing institutions under which workers would have access to the goods of not working, (laughs) the goods of leisure, the goods of participating in the common cultural life of society, things that were not reduced just to working hard and saving money.
1: So I won't ask you what you're working on next, uh, but I will ask, is there anything that uh, you would like to leave our listeners with that we didn't get a chance to talk about?
2: Well, I I do. So uh, I will tell you a little bit about what I'm working on now, and that is um, I'm working on why it's so hard to establish a society of equals. Why is it so hard to get more equality in society? Why do we, why do people insist on differentiating each other by class, race, gender, and other social identities and putting some groups above others and looking down their noses at others? Uh, And I think that actually the conservative work ethic is an expression of that desire to think of one's own group as virtuous and other groups as vicious even though there's not great empirical evidence for the prejudices of the work ethic, uh, as as Smith properly argued. Um, But there is that deep need that people want to get esteemed and uh, respected. And what I argue is what makes it so hard to create a society of equals is that people think that the only way they could be properly respected is if other people are disrespected, other groups, other social groups. And that I think is the great weakness of all inegalitarian uh, uh, systems is is that they think that whole groups differ in virtue and vice, whether that be race groups, gender groups, class groups, or what have you, or national identity groups. Um, and uh, that's fundamentally false and What I want to do then at this more abstract level than in hijacked is to explain how everyone can gain if we all treat each other with respect and provide opportunities for everyone to do things that deserve the esteem of others. We don't have to shut them out of those opportunities on the pretense uh, that they're no good.
1: It, it, you know, it's interesting that you raise those issues, because as I was reading the conclusion to Hijacked, um, for some reason, what popped into my head was the ongoing sort of debate among parents, especially over um, participation trophies. Uh, when kids get involved in in youth sports right the, everybody finishes the season and 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 there's this folks who decry the idea of of awarding the team that finished last and and i've always it, it seems to me in, in this egalitarian argument that you're making there's something going there's something about that that that, that seems wrong to 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 focus on that issue because I, you know, I, I run recreationally and every run that I go to, I get a finisher's medal. And I, I know that I'm in no danger of actually ever winning one of these races. (laughs) It's it's not going to happen. Um, but, but I appreciate the, I appreciate the reward And the fact of the matter is that if I don't show up to that race, the race doesn't happen. Nobody can win um, unless everybody gets to participate and and that you need to reward the participation at some level or another.
2: Yes. Well, you know, the Puritans had a wonderful uh, metaphor for the division of labor when they argued Uh, for the essential equality of all callings. That is people they thought would be called by God to a particular occupation in the division of labor that fit their skills, their talents, and their preferences. But they argued that all occupations, all callings were fundamentally equal. And the way they explained this is by comparing the division of labor to the mechanism of a clock with all the interlocking gears. And their argument was, look, it doesn't matter whether you are a big gear or a small gear, it's all the gears working together that are collectively responsible for the ability of this mechanism to tell time. (laughs) And similarly, it's everyone working together at their proper occupation in the division of labor that is re- constantly responsible for the prosperity of society, for all the production needed to make sure that everyone flourishes. And that was a warning against the rich to not get on their high horses and think they're so superior to everyone else, because the thing that makes them rich is the labor of everybody else in society.
1: Well, and I think
2: a- we would do well to remember that today ab- about the division of labor.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's a lovely metaphor. Elizabeth Anderson, thank you again for taking the time to talk today. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure to talk with you. Once again, my guest today has been Elizabeth Anderson, the author of Hijacked, How Neoliberalism Turned to the Work Ethic Against Workers and How Workers Can Take It Back from Cambridge University Press. My name is Tom DeSena and you are listening to The New Books Network.